This week we're talking about expressive photography with Alistair Ben, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. I really struggle with verbalizing some things when it comes to landscape photography. I struggle to get in touch with the psychology behind my photography. That's why I'm excited for today's guest. His name is Alistair Ben. If that name rings a bell, it's probably because you're either subscribed to his YouTube channel, which is called Expressive Photography, or maybe you're already familiar with his work. His work could probably be described best as moody vignettes of nature or moody abstracts. I really have a great appreciation for not only his photography, but for his ability to uh, verbalize and communicate some of the more challenging things to quantify, like why do you do landscape photography and finding yourself in your photography. So that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. We're talking with Alistair Ben about expressive photography. So, Alistair, it's fun to sit down with you again. I just got done watching our chat on YouTube. We said that we would hang out again, and here we are. <laughs> I didn't expect it quite so soon, but uh, yeah, it's an absolute <laughs> pleasure to be here uh, without the distraction of having to look at you out of focus. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be kind of nice not to have to look back at me. That's not one of my favorite things. Enviable beard, man. <laughs> Some days, some days it just looks like a big rat's nest on my chin. Actually, that's most days. <laughs> so, Alistair, I wanted to have you on the show because you are so good at verbalizing some of the more complex ideas around landscape photography. And and after listening to you talk at the Out of Chicago conference that we just were both a part of, I've I fell in. I've got a crush. I guess I've got, I guess I've got a crush on you, Alistair. I'm, you're just so good about verbalizing a lot of the stuff that I really struggle with. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, some of those kind of ideas on this episode. Okay. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. I, I've, I've built you up so much. You better deliver. Alistair. Okay. Right. I'll, I'll get my thinking <laughs> face on. So people that are not already familiar with your photography, maybe so they can follow along during this podcast. First of all, where th can they go to like check out some of your work and follow along as they listen? The place I'm putting most of my emphasis on these days is the YouTube channel. Uh, since we're all in lockdown and isolating ourselves to, to try and be safe and to limit the spread of this dreadful pandemic, uh, we're putting all our attention into online content. So uh, the YouTube channel is Expressive Photography um, and the website is also called Expressive Photography, which is expressive.photography. And they're my main two things. It's Alistair underscore Ben on Insta. And we've just started a new Facebook group for the Vision and Light series, which you were on obviously today, um, to build a bit, a bit of a community there. So th that's the main things. And that, that's really where my main online presence is these days. How long have you been thinking about doing this 
obviously the us having so much time at home has probably freed you up to do some of this stuff. Is this something that's been on on your mind to do for a while, and now you're just finally finding the time, or is this? Yeah, yeah. It, it was. Um, I've been writing ebooks since about 2011. I published my first book in early 2012, which is still selling that night photography book that I wrote. So I, I started writing a lot of books, and and I kind of. And I never really had a massive online presence. It was, I wasn't into kind of building communities and stuff. But uh, I was in the Gobi Desert with Adam Gibbs um, February or so last year, 2019. And obviously, I, I was aware of the growth of his YouTube channel. And we kind of talked about it. And, and he said it was a, a really important part of his business now. Um, and it was really, I did start about the spring of last year, and but it was a really turbulent year. I was moving house. I was living in Norway for a while. And um, obviously, you know, you need to have a certain amount of gear to set up these things well, you know, a studio and cameras mm -hmm. and all the recording equipment and stuff. So it wasn't really until the winter just passed that, that Anne and I started to put more energy into it. And it was really kind of late January, I suppose. Uh, and yeah, the, the growth has been great. I mean, uh, it's it's growing really fast and people seem to like the content. And uh, yeah, th this is our main focus now. And honestly, without it, we'd be kind of struggling now because all of our workshops got cancelled. Um, I think yeah, it was it's like 14 weeks of workshops got cancelled, which is kind of major for our, for our income. It's a very tough time to be a workshop leader. I can I can testify to that. Yeah, it's, right. It's well, a you know challenging what? And, time. And, and I'm not complaining. I mean, we're we're not alone, and there's an awful lot of people way worse off than we are. But um, you, you know, we've we've kind of uh, sprung back and decided just to throw our energy into the YouTube channel, and obviously that that results in people buying my eBooks and stuff. So you know, it's really helped out uh, in terms of uh, short term income until the workshops kick in again in the autumn, hopefully. I've really been enjoying all the work that you've been putting into your YouTube channel because one of the things that you talk about that is so different than a lot of other channels out there is kind of like what we were talking about in our talk is that you're talking more about the why rather than the how. People can talk about different you know, photographic techniques and how to focus stack and all of these really technical things. That stuff is in a lot of ways, a lot easier to talk about than the why do you do photography and the, the more deep questions. And I, I love that you talk about that stuff because that that is oftentimes the most fruitful kinds of conversations you can have with people, I think. Right. Uh, you know, people have been writing how-to books and making how-to videos for, for decades. Um, and I think an awful lot of that stuff's pretty documented. It's, you know, basically point your camera at something and push a button and make sure it's focused and exposed. <laughs> you know, that that's, it, it's not, like rocket science to point your camera mm -hmm. at something and push a button and make sure it's in focus and exposed. Uh, however, deciding why you're pointing your camera at that specific thing and questioning your own motives, I think is really important because unless we explore our internal motivations for doing these things, then we never really truly understand why we are actually doing it. Uh, and that that's the real focus of my life is, is to kind of understand my view of the world and why I'm pointing my camera at the, the certain things I find appealing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think about it a lot and I, I spend all my time 
uh, either thinking about it, writing about it, vlogging about it, or making photographs about it. So yeah, I mean, it is a complete absorbing life that that I have no escape from. (laughs) I've been, I've been stalking your personal website and trying to get caught up with your, your portfolio and your body of work. And a lot of your work, tends to be on the the kind of smaller, more abstract scenes. And a lot of it comes across as kind of, um, I don't know, very dark and moody. You know, there's that, that word again that everybody uses moody, Mm. you know, a lot of, a lot of your work is, is very abstract. And I, I'm curious, has your work always been kind of on that, you know, focusing on those smaller scenes or was there a time when you were shot the grand landscape? Why do you gravitate more towards those smaller scenes? That's a, that's a great question. Um, when I first got back into photography, it was about 2002, um, and I'd, I'd been a f- photographer when I was a kid. I mean, I had a camera when I was a kid and shot Velvia, and my two big brothers had cameras, and you know, I, there was always an interest in the landscape. But when early 2000s, it was bird photography that kind of dragged me back into to photography. I was living in the Far East and, and spent a lot of time in the rainforest chasing beautifully colored birds around with a big long lens. So. When I got into landscapes, I didn't have any framework on which to work. I didn't have any formal training. I didn't I hadn't read any books on composition or anything like that. And what I did back in sort of 2003, 2004, when I wasn't photographing birds, was I would point my camera at things I thought was cool. Um, and it was a very innate, intuitive, uh, freeform uh, kind of way. And then as I started getting into landscape photography more, it was the work of people like Galen Rowell came uh, into the fore. And then you became aware of that kind of contemporary scene. And, and someone like Mark Adamus was just coming up in the ranks in the sort of mid-2000s. And his work was just stellar and was kind of an evolution of Galen's work with the adventure spirit and so forth. And, you know, other photographers like Sean Bagshaw and... Uh, a whole bunch. I mean, it would be unfair to name lots and lots of names, but the the big landscape photography was certainly something that appealed to me. And I was living by that time, I was living in the Himalaya, I was living in Tibet. So I, I spent all my time out photographing the Himalaya. Uh, so yeah, it was all big landscapes and wide angled lenses. And I, I did the 1424 thing that everybody else did. And I got kind of good at that. And then Mark Adamus and I ended up co-running a trip to Tibet in 2015. And after spending three weeks running around at uh, 17, 18,000 feet with Mark, I realized that he just did it way better than I did. <laughs> um, and I just thought, I'm never going to be that good at that thing, you know, that, that really big landscape thing. And I found myself much more intuitively connected to smaller, more anonymous scenes. And it was, I spent quite a few years traveling in the Gobi Desert, uh, where there's, it's all abstracts. It's all just lines and forms and textures and transitions. Uh, and I really gravitated towards the abstract, uh, because I felt there's no rules in the abstract. You can put anything anywhere. You can, you can send lines off into negative space that are in really strange parts of the frame. And, you know, it, it's less formulaic. Uh, I think the problem with a lot of contemporary landscape photography is it becomes very formulaic. Mm-hmm. It's have the flower down in the bottom left-hand side, have the river flowing up to the pointy mountain, either in slightly off-center to the right. You know, I think it can be a little bit kind of making photos by numbers uh, yeah. in a way. Uh, so, 
Yes, I, th- I think it's it's been easier to find myself in the abstract. And secondly, I think it's easier to be unique in the abstract. I find myself slowly starting to gravitate more towards, you know, those shots that I don't feel like everybody is photographing. I talk a lot about there's some places are just teed up for you. You know, you go to a Tipsu Lake with Mount Rainier in the background. There's not really much you can do there to make that photo all your own. The only thing that's really going to change is the processing, maybe the time of year and the conditions. Otherwise, it's going to be just like every other photo that's ever been taken there. But if you just wander into a random forest somewhere and somehow come away with a composition that you're happy with, which is not only the challenge, but it's also far more rewarding because you feel like, you know, you earned it a little bit because it wasn't easy. And you know that most likely other people haven't already photographed that little scene to death. It's really easy in our profession to come across as being judgmental or arrogant Mm -hmm. or or kind of condescending about photographing well-known places. I mean, every time we have these conversations, we end up having to come with the same caveat that we're not judging, uh, even though it sounds like we are. (laughs) Um, And basically, I think the difference in my eyes is this, that if you go to a a very famous place, whether it's Kirkafell on the west coast of Iceland or the Bucholeta Moor in Glencoe in Scotland or Mesa Arch is the old favourite, or any of these really famous places, you're there to photograph that place and it's your memory and your relationship with that place is what you're photographing. It, the, 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 most of these places are dynamic. Very few flat landscapes are, are, are that popular um, because mm-hmm. people need pointy mountains. They need dynamic weather. They need great light to make these highly energetic and impactful photographs. Now, The same aesthetic principles of angularity, dynamics, transitions, contrast, luminosity, atmosphere exist in lots of other places. It's just they've never been done before. Um, And I think when you find these things yourself, instead of externalizing and kind of glorifying the landscape for whatever end that may be, either because you are just so into that landscape or you just want to boost your ego by getting people to like your photographs. Um, if you if you find intimate, anonymous landscapes that have those same elements of dynamics in them that resonate within you, then you're you're actually internalizing the process and you're finding more about yourself rather than kind of relying on a dramatic landscape to deliver for you. That's interesting. That's one of the terms that you often use is finding yourself in the landscape. Maybe mm. you can elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that. Right. You you mentioned in my personal portfolio work that the, there's a moodiness there. Um, and I think that's something I talked about with Guy Tal when I talked to him on the Vision and Light show, uh, where Guy and I are both people who've suffered openly and we've talked about it in our writing uh, with depression, you know, either, you know, either full on uh, black periods in our lives or just being very, very down and uh, melancholy for prolonged periods of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm inherently an optimistic person. I, I, I have hope. I have uh, optimism and I, I want to believe that there's goodness out there. Um, and I used photography as a therapeutic 
thing. It, it was a way for me to go into the landscape and switch off my mind for a few hours or a few days if I was backpacking or camping, um, where you immerse yourself in the landscape. And when I talk about finding myself in the landscape, it's finding compositions that somehow reflect those emotions that are in you that you either are unable to express or uh, it's easier not to express them at all and just use the compositions to make those expressions for you. It's the same if you're a rock climber. I remember in my late teens going off to university and, and I'd been dumped by a girl or something like that and I was really miserable. And whenever I went rock climbing, I'd forget about it. You know, I'd, for that, for those few hours on the routes, I wasn't thinking about being dumped. I wasn't thinking about missing this girl. And you become so absorbed in the flow state of movement on rock. And movement with a camera within the world is the same. It, it engages your mind sufficiently so that you don't have room for those other things. But what comes out if you allow yourself to compose innately and without judgment is, is images that you probably wouldn't make if you were looking for photographs. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about finding myself in the landscape, I, I notice things that somehow portray or summarize uh, some essence of who I am at that moment in time, uh, whether I can verbalize it or not. That is such a great point because I, I've experienced that exact thing when, you know, when I've been either forced to go out and shoot when things are not great and I'm, right. I'm definitely depressed. Or just other times where I'm trying to escape from my depression by going out and photographing the, the images that often come out of that, they're obviously sad or, you know, they have that, that feeling, that emotion injected into them, even though I was not consciously attempting to do that. It just happens. It's really interesting how sometimes what we choose to compose, what, how we choose to process can greatly uh, reflect how we were feeling at the time. It's really easy for me when I look back at my portfolio to see exactly how I was feeling when I took those photos. Absolutely, and we talked about this in the in the uh, the <clears throat> the video cast that that we just watched on the Vision and Light channel, which is photography is an expressive medium. You know, it, it's we we talk about painting with light. We talk about communicating. We talk about articulating feelings, emotions, telling stories. All of these things get bandied around and, and people just accept them as kind of trite. They're just trite statements that old guys have been saying for decades. <laughs> you know, uh, Minor White was talking about this in the late 50s and early 60s. And, you know, it, it's just one of those things that it can be such a powerful tool for therapeutic benefits. I, I have a very good friend of mine who, who teaches photography uh, to uh, ex-army uh, uh, personnel with PTSD, uh, and they are traumatized to the point where they're barely functional in society. And she takes them out into the countryside with cameras and allows them to express themselves. And, and it's a door that they can walk through that suddenly allows them to articulate things that are buried deep inside them. I'm probably more interested in the therapeutic benefits of photography for not just ourselves personally, but society as a whole than I am in individual photographs. Um, I think we talked about this off camera last week uh, when, you know, after we'd recorded, we were talking about this very point and there has to be more value than likes on Instagram. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you're doing it for those, those types of reasons, if there's not a deeper reason that you're 
doing photography in the first place, you will get burnt out because it's really hard to, you know, maintain the amount of financial investment, time investment, you know, all the effort that we put into photography. If we're going, if our motivation is so shallow, it, that motivation will run out. But if you're doing it because you're passionate about it, because you honestly get joy from it, you won't get burnt out. You'll, you'll keep running back to it as a, like you, like you said, as a therapeutic thing. Um, that, that's hard for me to say. Uh, and, and the only reason I'm going to slightly dodge that point is I, I try not to think too much about what other people are doing. You know, I, I mm-hmm. think it, it can be very difficult to understand everyone else's motives for why they pick up cameras in the first place. Uh, I think there's a very broad spectrum out there of why people are making photographs. Uh, so all I really do is I always talk from my own perspective. This is why I do it. And if that resonates with you, then maybe, you know, you might gain something from from the thought or insight that I that I get from thinking about this 24-7. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I feel sad about when I see photographers who've been making the same photograph for a decade you know, it's, it's the same composition. It's just different locations. I mean, and you see them out there. I mean, there's, it's just such an easy thing to recognize. You just look at someone's portfolio and it is more or less the same, the same mm-hmm. composition, just with slightly different elements. And I found myself going down that road because I learned a load of rules, you know, after 2005 or so, when I started to look at landscapes more as a profession, um, I thought, well, I better study, you know, so I, I, I contacted, uh, you know, fine art, uh, university programs and talked to some professors and got some reading lists and things that I should be reading. And I did a bunch of studying and you know, obviously you start reading about the aesthetic and you start reading about, you know, compositional rules and guidelines and theories and formulas and all of this stuff. And I started making photographs using templates, more or less. And I got to the stage probably in 2011 where I I just hated photography. I I just got to the point where it was just, I I don't enjoy this anymore. I'm I'm just going out and doing the same old thing again and again and again. And I, I had to essentially reinvent myself. Um, and that, that was the turning point for me. It's when I stopped trying to be somebody else and just started focusing on being me. Yeah, I can really relate with that. That sense of I'm traveling around the world, taking the same photo in different places. And it, yeah. and like you said, it's because it just gets a little bit too formulaic because you're narrowing your you know, you're narrowing yourself by all of these ideas of rules, different rules. You know, you want to have leading lines in your foreground and a triangular peak in the background until you break out of that. It, it can be a little bit challenging, but I think that the reason there's so much of that kind of information out there, you know, the rules and guidelines and stuff is because there's so many kind of beginning photographers. A lot of those photographers in those early years benefit a lot from, you know, those guidelines like you should try this. But at some point you have to grow out of that. That way you can start to, you know, create work that is breaking some of those rules. Because in the beginning you don't have some of the natural instincts that, you know, this composition just feels comfortable, it feels right. You have to kind of have some of those guidelines in mind when you're looking for composition. But after a while, you no longer need to be reading the tab in order to play a song. 
if we're going to throw it back to guitar, yeah. because when you're first learning guitar, you need, you need to be copying the work of others. But at some point you want to write your own song. And the same is kind of true for landscape photography or any other kind of photography where in the beginning, you're recreating compositions that have already been done. But at some point, you know, go out and experiment and try to find your own compositions and try not to overthink it. It's a, it's a curious one that, I mean, you know, obviously we're both musicians and, and we use musical analogies a lot. And, and I've been learning to play the guitar since I was probably 13 years old. So that's what, 40 years now? And you're dead right. I mean, I started out just by trying to learn to play other people's songs, whether it was Dave Gilmore or Alex Lifeson or Jimmy Page or, you know, all these great guitar players. And then that gravitated towards like Eddie Van Halen and Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and John Petrucci. And, you know, and it gets mm -hmm. to the point where it just gets too hard, you know? There's an awful lot of great guitar learning material out there. They're split in two sides. And one is kind of technique, which is, you know, how to hold the pick or how to fret or how to do legato or how to alternate picking and all this type of stuff. And then you have creativity. And they are completely different. You know, the techniques are just, that's your vocabulary almost. Um, and creativity has got very little to do with rules. I mean, you can have structure within a song, but equally you can have totally ambient music that doesn't follow any structural rules at all. Um, and it really depends on what you're trying to say. And I think the only advantage of learning rules photographically is they become acceptable or societally acceptable aesthetics, you know, so mm -hmm. you'll end up with something that most people will think, yeah, that's a nice photograph because they've been conditioned to saying, oh, that's a nice photograph. There's no guarantee that that photograph has meaning. Yeah. yeah. And I think it really depends on your motive. You know, why are you making the photographs in the first place? If you want to be popular, if you want people to say you're a great photographer or have a fantastic eye, you know, which is the, the stock phrase, uh, then great. Make, make photographs using templates, but that's very little to do with creativity. It also greatly impacts the the sense of satisfaction that I get out of it because I know I'm conscious when I'm not really stretching myself creatively. When I line up my composition on the back of my camera and I can recognize a previous photo from it, mm. I don't feel quite as proud of mm. that <laughs> image. And I know that I'm not going to have as much sentimental, you know, attachment to that image because like I recognize a previous image in that I won't tell anybody because yeah. people will still like it and people, but it, at some point it just feels like a cover song of a previous <laughs> image that I've already taken. Well, you know, I, again, I just think it keeps coming back to this motivation and why are you actually out in the field with a camera in the first place? I think when I first started making landscape photographs, I was out in the landscape to make photographs that would make people think I was a good photographer. You know, it was important to me to be peer recognized. I think mm -hmm. this is, you know, mid 2000s. You know, when I used to get comments off Guy Tal or Mark Adamus or people who I really looked up to and admired. I mean, it was just, it, it made my day, you know, to get recognition from those people because I really admired their opinion. But at the same time, I think I definitely got to a stage where it's those, it's being lost in the landscape and just being so fascinated with the thing that you're engaged with. That's a thing in itself, you know, whether you actually push the shutter button or whether you just get lost in the reflections in a puddle for an hour, uh, or the way raindrops are setting patterns going through a, a little a little pool in a forest or something like that. Those those moments of your life 
are valuable. You know, mm-hmm. switching off the outside world. I was talking to Paul Ziska about this on Monday. Switching off the outside world, losing yourself in the in the fascination with the landscape like a child. That has meaning to our lives. Now, if you can somehow, through craft and understanding of articulating your emotions and and understanding the 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 impact of of the arrangement within the frame, if you can use that sketch uh, of engagement that you were out there in the field making to communicate something of that fascination for the world out there and the implications of that fascination, which is this world is fragile, vulnerable, and needs our pr- protection then that is also a skill, but it's a separate skill. So being out in the landscape and loving being out there is one thing that has huge value to our lives. And whether you've got an SD card in your camera or not, you're still having a wonderful life. Uh, mm-hmm. When you finally make a product and articulate that and send it out into the world, if that sparks the fire of inspiration and motivation in someone else to put down the TV remote and get out into a local woodland and find a pond and get lost in it, then that that is a powerful thing to do. Yeah. And another question is, is it the journey? You know, is it the creation process that you enjoy more? Or is it the end destination of, look at this amazing photograph, aren't I great? You know? And I rarely me, do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I rarely do that at all. Most of the time, by the time I get to the, you know, the end result, I'm over it. You know, it's like, ah, just I just want to go shoot again. I get far more enjoyment out of the creation process than I actually do the end result. And I think that that will speak to whether what you're photographing is something that you're passionate about, that you actually derive honest joy from, or is it more like what you were saying, more about the recognition of that photograph, just because you know it's going to be popular. Getting back to the not liking how formulaic things can tend to get. That's part of the reason that I like photography that takes some of the control out of my hands. You know, Mm -hmm. I like interesting weather. I like, you know, dramatic waves. I love seascapes. The reason I like that stuff is because it's really hard to be formulaic when you're in zero control over what's happening. I really, really like that. In terms of looking at it as, I mean, the word journey is guaranteed to get up Adam Gibbs's nose. He absolutely hates that word. Um, (laughs) I don't separate the making of photographs from living my life. Yeah. So I don't look on the creative process as separate from my existence in a way. So it's time spent out in the field being fascinated with something in, in the landscape is value for life. Spending time in front of the computer, uh, having a relationship with some raw data can be meaningful as well, because I only tend to work images that are kind of saying work me. You know, it, it's, I, I don't, I don't really work any images unless it's like, ah, right. Yeah. That's, that's talking to me right now. I'm not very, I mean, obviously, yeah, you're, you're making an image at the end of the day. And if you put it out there into the world, then you're basically saying, this is me. This is something that I think is important to say. I like this. Uh, but that's about as far as it goes. Now, th- there's a big difference. And I talked about this with Paul um, on Monday is if you're a professional photographer, you know, this, you, you, me, Paul Ziska, Guy Tal, Mark Adamus, you know, we make our living as landscape photographers. All our income comes from landscape photography. And therefore, if you don't have a market for your work, either writing or photographs or videos or whatever, 
then or workshops, then you don't have an income. So there's a certain amount of advertising associated with our photography. Yeah. So if if no one likes our stuff, then no one is going <laughs> to sign up for a workshop or buy a processing video or a book mm-hmm. uh, or watch your YouTube channel. So the problem, the balancing point is finding that point where you don't just sell out and become a cliche and producing the same stuff as everybody else that you know will be popular uh, versus maintaining that creative integrity where you can be yourself, have your own voice, bring value to the marketplace, um, either coming at it from a different angle or looking at things from a different way or expressing things in a, in a way that hasn't been expressed so commonly before. So uh, again, I mean, I, I talk about the word amateur a lot and it gets looked on as a negative. Everyone wants to be looked on as a professional photographer, whereas the word amateur comes obviously from the Latin and the French, which is to love, you know, for the love of it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm an amateur. I make photographs because I love it. I just happen to make my income from it as well. But I'm, I don't want to sell out. I mean, authenticity and being genuine and honest and having integrity to me is very, very important. It's just a fundamental moral part of who I am is I, I don't want to lie to people and I don't want to deceive people and I don't want to pretend I'm something that I'm not. So all of those things, the, 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 the photograph at the end of the day is just a function of my creative life, I suppose. And at the time I put anything online, it's just like saying, yeah, this is what I was doing today. If, if you like it, great. <laughs> you know, that, that's a little snapshot of my brain today. <laughs> <laughs> we had a couple questions come in on the Facebook group. Um, one question that came up was a pretty good one. They said that a lot of your post-processing tends to be fairly dark and fairly moody, kind of like we talked about. Are you doing anything like when you go to print an image like that? How, how are you making that dark, moody image print well? Because a lot of times a dark print sometimes loses some of the shadow information. If we're talking a little bit more technically, how do you make one of those type of images print well? It really depends on the paper. Uh, I think I, I had a big print run uh, last summer. I, I, I sold some big, big prints, uh, like a meter square um, to to a place in Norway. And they were really dark and moody images. You know, they were really kind of... <laughs> in that moody spectrum. And it took a while to work with the print lab to to dial in the balance of darkness without them getting too muddy. The 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 most important thing I think on that side of things is an output level in Photoshop, you know, where the blacks are brought up somewhat. Uh, obviously you have two sliders in the levels panel and it's the lord of the two and you can you can set a, a value for your black point uh, so i tend to sort of bring mine up to like two or three uh, rather than zero um, and that way the print just doesn't have that muddiness to it you'll it's an easier way to retain some of that contrast but yeah i mean proofing proofing a dark print is difficult Prints haven't been a massive part of my output. Uh, I do occasionally, but most of them tend to print quite well. Uh, I think that as long as your luminosity is right and as long as the, the midtones are balanced so that they're not too dark, I think I'd probably bring the midtones up slightly and that's where most of the implied shadow detail is going to come from. I think that's one of the things that doesn't always come across is that in a dark image like that, the the shadow information is not going all the way to black. So as no. long as it's not going all the way to black, it's in those darker midtones. 
Yeah, the well, like zone, well. zones three and four is, is where an awful lot of that shadow information is really visible. I mean, but no one sees anything in zones one and two anyway. The darker and moodier an image is, the more I kind of protect that black point. You know, I yeah. don't want that sh those shadows to go all the way to black. Yeah. Um, so another question that came in is, do you have any favorite insights from guests that you've had on your show? Oh, goodness. Um or were you listening? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't listen to anybody. Uh, I think the thing that's really coming out the most is attributes of creativity. You know, th things that the guests are saying are key components. Uh, one of them that comes up again and again and again is, uh, I've forgotten, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is um, having a kind of... Um, inquisitiveness uh you know having a real fascination and a, a sense of inquiry as to um what it is that's making something speak to us almost um so there's a kind of a fascination and an interest the, the other thing that's really coming out is the people who i like speaking to are just super passionate about the landscape Everyone who's been on the show so far just absolutely loves the landscape. And the one thing I've probably heard more than anything else is um, if, if, if I was told I could either never go into the landscape again or I could go but without a camera, it would be a no-brainer. You know, mm -hmm. we would all go out into the landscape and either we'd be mountaineers or rock climbers or just backpackers and hikers or people just going out bird watching or some other way that you can enjoy the landscape. I, I happily go out these days that we're in lockdown without a camera. Um, I was out today for my, for my one walk and, you know, we, we were just went up the glen and we we're just looking at birds and looking at the way the lights interacting with the landscape and the atmosphere and the clouds. And, you know, you can still have a full appreciation of the landscape without having a camera in your hand. So that, that, that's probably the main insight is just that absolute love of the landscape and which is why it needs protected. Yeah, I would almost argue that sometimes you can have a better appreciation for the landscape without a camera in your hand, because at least in my case, as soon as I have a camera in my hand, I'm starting to go into photographer mode. I start getting picky, you know, like, <laughs> oh, this light. This light is not sufficient for what I want to accomplish. Ah. And this is another thing that we talked a little bit about. I think it was at the out of Chicago thing is that our perspective is going to change a little bit coming out of this lockdown period that we're in where we're staying home and we're in quarantine. I think that maybe we'll be, and you brought this point up, maybe we'll be a little bit more appreciative for just average light rather than just getting snobby about the kind of light that we're out and getting to experience. I really hope so. I, I, I really do. I mean, it's, I've, I've always said it's a fascinating world out there and it's full of interesting things and it's our expectations and judgment when we go out into the landscape that basically blinker us and kill our creativity. If you go into the landscape with an open heart and an open mind and no blinkers on and no expectations and, and no kind of judgment about the conditions, you will make photographs and they will be meaningful photographs. If you go out there thinking, oh man, it's going to be an awesome sunrise because TPE said it was going to be an awesome sunrise <laughs> with an 80% chance of red clouds in this direction. And, you know, and then it doesn't deliver and you just walk away thinking, well, that was shit. Then I think that's a real shame. 
because I'll tell you, any day in the landscape is better than a day in 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 the office. <laughs> it's uh, you know, give me give me being out in the rain over sitting and having to do something that maybe I don't want to do, like the accounts. <laughs> you know? uh, so yeah, I I don't have any. If I I think that was the big change for me was giving up expectation, giving up judgment, and just going out and thinking right what's speaking to me, you know, and that could be atmosphere or, you know, small scenes or something like that. I'm doing a Q&A for Nature Photography Network tonight, and we're talking about small scenes and expressive photography. And it's exactly this, which is just going out and just accepting what the landscape has to deliver. When you're going out to shoot, I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to this, but how much are you trying to pre-visualize and how much are you just trying to react? I, I, I don't think I ever pre-visualize um, before I go out. I, occasionally when I'm in the field and I have something in the viewfinder, I may have a, a little flash of inspiration as to where that might go as a final image. Um, you know, I, you know, whether it's black and white processing or whether it's going to be high contrast or, or, or whether it's going to be super moody with just really, really hidden little details of highlights. So I, I, can, I can have that sort of classic pre-visualization of what the final image may look like, but I almost never go into the landscape with a, this is what I'm going to do type of mentality. I did. I absolutely did. I became a really technical photographer in the 2000s and used to have my TP and the Google Earth and you know, working out where the moon was going to be coming up. And when you're writing a book on night photography, where the moon is in the sky is obviously a really important thing to know. So I, th I think that lends itself to a more technical side of photography. I think uh, um, there was people talking about that at the uh, Chicago as well, you know, as the planning of celestial events and stuff like that. But for me these days, I, it's, the, it's a very low priority for me. I, I, I I don't go out with expectations of anything happening and I do not pre-visualize at all. On that point, I feel like the the more expectations I go in with, the more likely I am to be disappointed not and not have fun. The less expectations I go in with, the more likely I'm just there to enjoy myself and I'm more likely to, you know, enjoy the process of you know, like you mentioned earlier, you walk around with childlike curiosity. Right. I, I really resonate with that because when I'm having the most fun with photography, it's because I'm in that kind of childlike curiosity where, ooh, I wonder what's over here. And then like, ooh, that looks like it might make a good photo. And just walking around with uh, zero expectations, just trying to react to what's happening around me, that's when I have my most fun. I think it's worth saying though that, you know, the word photography and the word landscape photography covers a very, very broad spectrum these days. You know, you, yeah, you can does. be photographing wildflowers in a wood and that's landscape photography. You can be photographing tornadoes in South mm -hmm. Dakota and that's landscape photography. You can be in the desert, you can be in the mountains, you can be by the ocean. It's all landscape photography. It's a very broad spectrum. Yeah. Now, I can enjoy photography in any shape or form. You know, if if there are people out there chasing Milky Ways over deserts or storm chasing in the Southwest in August or with whatever, it's all great. If people are out having fun, engaging with the landscape and with a, with a fascination, it's all good. Now, certain things will increase the likelihood of success in certain yep. genres. You know, it's like 
your wave photography, you know the conditions that are going to be conducive for big waves coming into the Pacific coast. No, no I just I just randomly wander onto the beach <laughs> at the exact right. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So, so you you know the days that are likely to deliver the sorts mm-hmm. of conditions that you want. Um, likewise with with storms, you know, if you watch the weather forecast and you can see a storm coming in, you know that that's likely when it's coming in to cause good atmospheric conditions that might deliver good light. You know, so with experience, you can increase the probability of doing those things, but. It's also nice to go in and say, right, I'm prepared for the best. I'm, I'm, my gear is prepared. My lenses are prepared. My batteries are charged. Um, you know, I've got everything I need to be successful should the opportunity arise. Um, so I'm prepared. I've prepared the vessel for excellence. Um, and if the weather happens to turn into something spectacular, you're not going to screw it up by, 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 by not being prepared. Um, so it's a balancing point between having the the skills and tools necessary to achieve what you want to achieve without feeling disappointed if the weather doesn't deliver what you hoped um, and i think that it's a tough balance and i think that's really what being human is all about is it's our reactions to disappointment that determine our character that type of planning it kind of sets yourself up for success you know when you're photographing condition-based stuff, whether it's seascapes with tide heights or, right. you know, storm cells or or the Milky Way, you know, it, some of that stuff absolutely requires some planning. And, and it's, it's more, I guess, what I was thinking is, like, if you're wandering into a random forest, pre-visual, pre-visualization is probably not going to help very much, you know. Right. And, and it's different just, if I'm on a workshop. I mean, if I'm running a workshop, it's my job to take right. participants to where I think the best conditions are going to be given on a given day. So it's, it's a case of, as you say, looking at the tide, looking at the weather, looking at the wind direction and getting an understanding of, right, well, we'll go to, we won't go to that place today because the wind's going to be in our face and it's going to be raining and, you know, it's going to be really, really hard. Whereas if we go to the other side, uh, we can have our back to the wind, we can find shelter, we can shoot in the opposite direction with the light and blah, blah, blah. You know, so that that's just skill. I mean, that's field craft, you know. So when I'm running workshops, again, that's very different from when I'm on my own or when I'm out with Anne, where you can just... Uh, be a little bit more spontaneous. It's harder to be spontaneous with five or six clients. Yeah, exactly. Well, Alistair, this is enjoyable, just like I knew it would be. (laughs) It's so much fun talking to you. Um, Where can people go to, uh, once again, uh, keep up with your YouTube channel and keep up and check out your photography? The YouTube channel is Expressive Photography. The website is also Expressive Photography. Uh, You can find me at Alistair underscore Ben on Insta and on Facebook, just uh, Alistair Ben, the A-L-I-S-T-E-R. There's, there's lots of different ways of spelling that Scottish name. <laughs> and Ben with two N's. Ben with two N's, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode. Take it easy, everybody. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>